and welcome to Integrated Awakenings. It's me, Maria, and today we are talking about dream analysis, our subconscious understanding of myths and fables. Hello! Okay, so I understand that not everybody remembers their dreams, but when you see a sign, so for example, a red stoplight, you understand that it means stop, right? So when we talk about dream analysis, uh, analyzing myths, we feel into the subconscious feeling of that red stop, right? Like, what if we brought that underneath the waters, underneath, and what does that mean? So, for example, oh, the vehicles stop, so movement stop, an external force governing order telling me and my movement to just halt, And then how do I feel about the stop sign? How does the character in the vehicle feel about the stop sign? Does it feel obedient or feels like breaking the law? That's what I meant about bringing it on a subconscious level, subconscious translation in terms of like, this is like subterranean math. (laughs) It's like puzzle interpretation and translation on just a subtle level. I know that right now, this can sound very cryptic, esoteric, impossible, but just like how I demoed it for you with a stop sign, it's actually really logical how to go about things. Basically, you explain what the stop sign is to an alien, you know, like, okay, this makes vehicles stop in the middle of the road for order, yeah, like someone who has no context of what's happening. And then you just translate that for the energies that are affecting or being affected by that stop sign. You feel me? You feel me? Okay, now I might be rushing into things too much. So let me just backtrack and talk about the types of dreams and then give you an example of like a collective myth slash fiction and we'll do an analysis together. Okay, okay. So Dreams in general, there are like three to four types. So the first one is you just digesting, regurgitating your day or maybe your anxieties. And it feels very kind of like a rewind ticker tape, right? So this is very just your brain just digesting everything that happened. The second kind is like a food dream. So basically, if you go to sleep full, your food karma unravels. So basically... If you ate meat, the rice, it's the rice's dream that you're having. So, <laughs> so don't do that if you don't want to if you don't want to have dreams that are specifically made by your food. Uh the third one is when we have some conscious desires, emotions, frustrations that can only be let out in the dream realm and these feel more poignant, more emotionally gripping. And these are the ones we're concerned with in terms of dream interpretation, right? And the fourth one is kind of special. So if you do dream work, if you do a lot of communing with the divine and asking for signs, especially via dreams, this is when energies send you messages specifically via dreams so that you have answers to questions, can visit Dreamwalk to other people's dreams, and like 
study in other realms. So this is like the crazy stuff. This asterisk number four is the crazy stuff. And the thing is, you know when you're doing this. Like you either do this or you don't. So there's this kind of, um, I see you, I feel you in case you do this. But if you're not, don't worry. We are staying the realm of interpretation for this podcast. So we're sticking it around, you know, three slash just a little bit of four. Yeah, yeah. Now, why am I talking about myths and fables? It's because myths, fables, fiction, the movies that we see are collective dreamings of the collective. Basically, these are signs, images, feeling, stories that really relieve, entertain, resonate with a lot of the present energies. And if we have a deeper understanding of how they are, if we could really witness it properly, we'll be able to empathize what is going on with the collective subconscious. Yeah? And the thing is, a lot of artists already do this quite subconsciously. In terms of, for example, movie directors, singers, when they touch something really real or something bigger than themselves and it, it just spreads like wildfire, there is usually a very archetypal story that's needing to be heard via that thing, right? In the same way that when we study history, so for example, we study ancient Japan or ancient Greece, we look at their fables at their popular epics to understand the culture and how things were at that time. How women were treated, how marriages were done, how did people perceive success, what were their values, was it duty, was it devotion, right? So when we look at stories that currently exist in your consciousness, in your collective's consciousness, we are already tapping into a collective drama slash value system and it's in a very convenient package which is the story okay this is the motivation for why i want you to be able to read this so basically i'll give you another metaphor so for example you're a layout artist and for layout artists it's popular that you lay stuff out in the grid because you want subtle alignments and proportions And we train your eye to see these grids, even if normal folks don't see them. And then when you see this underlying texture, you have a way to feel into the proportions of other artists, other designers, right? Other cultures. So for example, Japanese people have a lot of space, negative space in their layouts. So this is what I'm trying to talk about in terms of stories. I want you to feel the underlayer of things. I want you to notice the subconscious layer of things. And the technique to go about this is, I will summarize it. You better catch this because it's so short. <laughs> it's just two things. Okay. One, all energies and objects within a story is dreamt of by just one person, by one being. Okay, so for example, you have the story of Last of Us. <laughs> yes, I'm using Last of Us. Don't perceive Joel, Ellie, the cordyceps, 
uh, the fireflies as like different people. Imagine that's just like one person having one dream and those are just different aspects of themselves. Yeah. By the way, this is also traditional Jungian stuff and woven with transpersonal psychology. So this is legit. I'm just summarizing stuff for you. <laughs> so anyway, imagine it's all dreamt by one person. Okay. And then you will see what roles these aspects take on within that person. So for example, Joel. So for people who haven't seen The Last of Us, it's basically a post-apocalyptic movie where Cordyceps, a mushroom, has infected a lot of people, the whole world. And Joel is this dad, you know, who had a daughter that died early in the series, who is protecting this girl, Ellie, as she's traveling through the U.S., yeah? So if we look at these, like, chess pieces, yeah? Joel is a male protector archetype, right? Ellie is a young girl who's very smart, in Tagalog very angas, and is has within her a potentiality of the next world because she has uh, she's immune to the cordyceps, so she's she has like a legacy of the new world, right? And then the cordyceps is like an infection so it's like an aspect of destruction infection but also proliferation okay so anyway we'll look at the we'll look at the roles in deeper detail later but i'll give you number two okay so number one all aspects are dreamt of one being right so really perceive all characters energies motivations objects in the story as just by one person right number two Try to explain the aspects, the functions of the story, to an alien. In the same way that a while ago, I was over-explaining the red stoplight, I need you to explain the story in very kindergarten terms to an alien who probably has no context for it, right? So for example, I'll go... Okay, cordyceps is a mushroom. What's a mushroom? Oh, it's a fungi. It's something in between of like an animal and a plant that kind of just spreads, usually for decay, and um, doesn't really have like a physical body. And in this story, eats at someone else's body so that it could produce itself. So the alien would be like, oh, so it's something that's bodiless and is returning these bodies to decay yeah and then you're growing like yeah yeah so and they're gonna be like okay so what's post-apocalypse it's an end of the world and they're like okay and then the quote-unquote enemy or destructive force of this story is this entity that reclaims bodies right and multiplies and you're like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, do you, see it? do you see how you kind of need to... It's almost like you have the number six. And then you need to do some factorization of three times two. So you're trying to get, for example, cordyceps. And you're trying to break it down to simpler ideas. So, And ideas that kind of give you a clue 
of what this looks like on the underbelly of the story. So basically, decay, not having a body, proliferation. So maybe under cordyceps, you would have those words. You see what I'm saying? You see what I'm saying? Okay, so I do want to give you some basic archetypes that are usually for humans. <laughs> yeah? So usually, a gender of a person in a myth has these usual, typical arcs. If you've heard the hero's journey and the heroine's journey, the arc of a masculine energy, again, this is not a gender of a person. The person's the whole story. So this is just the aspect of a masculine. Maybe not even the whole masculine, especially if you have several characters that are like masculine energy. And then you have several feminine characters, like you have a queen, you have a priestess, you have a little girl. So um, really see these as like saying warm colors and cold colors. Yeah. So I, I really want you to not see these as independent people. These are just aspects. Yeah. Okay. So masculine energies tend to have a mountain-like progression in terms of they're looking at the external environment, doing achievements, like think of Hercules and like his trials, right? And even Joel, right? Like he's doing something, like he's trying to get Ellie somewhere and he's trained on the external environment and there's a lot of tests of strength. They become a man, right? They become a hero, right? And then a lot of feminine aspects. So there's, I just want to say, for these masculine energies, uh, other than it's like externally focused, there's a quote-unquote earning that's happening. Usually feminine aspects are already divine, are already chosen, are already like the house, right? right? They're already the prize, even in the beginning, like, think of Zelda from Legend of Zelda. She's already magic. Uh, Link has to earn his way up into wielding the stones, right? Whereas Zelda already has the capacity for it. So anyway, um, what I'm trying to say is that the masculine often has, like, this mountain-like journey because they scale a difficulty to earn something. So they're building up to something. While as feminine energies, so yang, masculine, is very reaching, right? Feminine is very receiving slash falling slash yielding. A lot of these priestess, women, princesses archetype have a falling into and yielding towards like a greater force. Typically, it's like a lover, but it could also be like God in terms of like grace and magic. Yeah, so this is why you have a lot of princess to be saved archetypes or princess awakens into secret magic, holy grail stuff archetype. You have a lot of women who are casted into internal magical feminine sensitivity tropes. Yeah, because... Uh, the heroine's journey tends to be internal, okay? So think of Elsa in Frozen, yeah? And how she is already 
a being of magic and she needed to almost break into her like depression slash despair to awaken into her legacy as like an ice deity <laughs> yeah yeah so there's this sense of um especially with princesses so think of princess leia how they already inherited the throne there's this thing about feminine quality energies and aspects of how uh they are already there is no they don't need to earn like they don't need to earn the top of the mountain they came from the mountain they just fell and they just need to fall again or yield again like they usually a yield to a protective force to bring them back up the mountain yeah so think of ellie from the last of us she was already she was already the answer right she she was already immune from birth from birth because of her weird birth with her mom she was already immune she was the answer towards a new future right she didn't she, so for example joel the masculine protector archetype learned how to harden himself and do hard things ellie was just born with it in a way yeah and the thing is because of her uh specialness that prizedness of her quality she is something that needs to be protected now i know that a lot of people uh don't like this slash can't also a lot of masculine people don't understand this but there's something about the feminine that's quite fragile and i don't mean it because we can't defend it ourselves it's more of we're holding something other beings can't access and that's why people would hunt us yeah so think about ellie being the answer to the future and thus everybody wants her everybody wants to steal her right go to any anime look for every like princess archetype she's always being stolen as hostage why because she has the keys to the kingdom you steal a guard nothing will happen to the kingdom you steal a princess you still you steal a king something will happen so that um uh so that inheritance that lineage is a strong archetype for feminine aspects yeah feminine quality aspects even if there's like a for example like a bratty prince energy that sense of inheritance is of feminine energy okay okay i hope people are like picking this up now a lot of people might my i remember my brother asking me why last of us is so popular why people like joel a lot and i'm like why wouldn't they it's literally a hot daddy energy who's protecting you through like the shittiest post apocalypse ever right <laughs> Yeah, and that's kind of like why we're so enamored by heroes. Like I remember when Captain America was very new and how everybody was like, "Wow, he's so hot." But that's the thing cuz he had a strong defender energy of the what? The weak. Yeah. And that's the thing with a lot of um masculine energies. It's like they were born in these stories, huh? Like what I noticed. Uh also if you pick up union books you'll you'll notice this as well. 
you if you read the text. If you read the text, they tend to be protecting feminine aspects. So think about this. Think about this within you. Okay, your masculine aspects is learning how to defend your own boundaries to protect the sensitivity of your feminine aspects, the sensitivity that's already connected to the divine. Right, and your feminine aspect is learning how to yield trust and discern which masculine aspect of you is like, oh, this bitch is like a real defender, and this bitch is a fake ass bitch. I'm hurt, cry, cry. I didn't defend my boundaries. See, see, this is this this whole ecosystem is happening within you. See, I don't want you to overly identify with like one aspect. Okay. You do that when you're in relationships, but when, <laughs> but when we but when we're analyzing stories, I need you to really see it within one being, as if one being is dreaming this. Yeah. Now, when we get and progress throughout the story, we see how Joel is tested in different ways, and we even see how Ellie is tested when Joel, like, uh, gets really injured. So one of the tests is safety. What if I don't need to finish the journey because I found my brother? Um, we can just give up. Another one is PTSD. What if I'm just so shell shocked with like my previous activities and I can't go on? Right. So these are like masculine dramas typically, and then the feminine drama or like typical princess drama. Is very much how do I trust again with what has with what horrors has happened before? Also, I do want to note. I find it really interesting that Ellie's initiation into the realization of her. Uh, I really want to call it divinity, the capacity to change the future, because that's kind of like how it's coded for other stories as well. Is through love, right? She was. Being romanced by her best friend, and her best friend literally asked her if they could just die like romantics, and she had kill her lover. Yeah, so that's what I'm saying with how usually what initiates a feminine energy is love slash a lover. Yeah, so um, so I find it interesting that what initiates Ellie into the truth of how she could change the future. Is a lover, right? So there's this sense of things happening to. So there's this sense of things happening to the feminine aspect, and her needing to discern and trust, and her needing to discern. In the same way, when she was with that pedophile, right, and be like, "I don't trust you," right? She was like, "I'm gonna bite your finger <laughs> when you're gonna try to roam." See how even when she was tempted, she was tempted by, "I'm a wife you," <laughs> yeah. So anyway, there's this sense of knowing your value, especially for like a feminine aspect. Really, Ellie, Ellie, knowing how. Uh, greedy people can get when they find something very crucial and important, and like being able to discern where she's supposed to put her eggs in which basket. Now, I find it if we skip over to the ending, it's typical in myths 
to have very metaphoric deaths and sacrifices. So, so for example, Jesus ascended and resurrected. Mother Mary also ascended. Uh, there are a lot of fantasy plots where... If you look at Aang in Avatar, he was asked to sacrifice his human attachment, like a death to his human story to become the Avatar, right? I know he, he like cheated that, but there's this, um, in the same way that stories always have like this big pit, like big despair energy before you get to the final climax, Uh, there is usually, in the end, a kind of ask for sacrifice because it is the door to portal of change. So I wasn't surprised when they were asking for Ellie to basically die for the sake of a chance of a cure because that's quite like a usual, typical symbolism for the end part of a story. So it's like a sports anime character being injured. It's someone being asked if they could sacrifice. Oh, God. So I wasn't surprised when she was asked to do a death transition. But what I noticed is that the Firefly head honcho made a decision for her when she was asleep. So basically, again, this decision was stolen from her. And they had to hold back Joel from keeping her safe again. And it's Joel who breaks her out and who makes the decision for her. So there's this overexpression of protection. I'm not saying she should have died, okay? I'm just saying that if I was explaining this to an alien, they might be saying that this is less about the cordyceps and more about Joel and Ellie. Right? It's more about Joel and Ellie living life not really solving or saving the world via the cordyceps thingy. So if this was uh, Harry Potter, this was less about defeating Voldemort and being able to subsist in a world where you do have your friends, your family that is immune to Voldemort but will not kill Voldemort. Do you see? Do you see what I'm saying? So anyway, um, when I explain this to the alien, they'll be like, oh, okay, so this is more about the relation of the protector energy being able to value the life in his second chance of like a little girl. Because in the ending, Joel does talk about his previous little girl, his previous princess, his previous progeny, right? And there's this kind of... When I look at The Last of Us, I feel like it's a very strong celebration of the night yeah because the night as an archetype is basically someone who's willing to travel the world in duty and fealty and devotion to their queen right in queen meaning the feminine aspect quality of their kingdom meaning what is worth defending what is worth protecting so when i see people be a fan of joel or even Pedro Pascal, as he's also protecting Mandalorian as another, like, divine child, right? As another important magical progeny of, like, the Jedi Order. Uh, they're really celebrating this knight energy that's willing to finish a quest. 
alone usually and with such uh, strength and devotion to protect that fragile and weak because usually the emperor would be something that stays in the kingdom and facilitates and governs right so it's more of game of thrones typical king energy does not really venture out right so the knight is more resonant in a way because sometimes a prince energy deserves earns the kingdom by protecting a princess energy so for example um in the mandalorian pedro pascal's character or the mando basically uh protects grogu right protects little jedi and little jedi in the end says i am loyal to you i am a mandalorian before i am a jedi right so if you go to fables this is when the princess marries the knight so that the knight becomes king yeah so this is when zelda's like I love you Link. I know that this rarely happens in the games, but this is, you know, how people usually write this in fan fiction and like some fa- uh, and some canon lore, which is I love you Link. And if you we become a thing, basically Zelda's queen and Link is king. So Link's whole knighthood was for him to be coronated and to earn being king because he He traveled the whole expanse and he knew how to defend the feminine aspect. Yeah, the, the divine feminine aspect. So usually children, usually children are strong divine feminine energies because they are very dependent on parental energies. Meaning, so again when I say feminine it's less about gender and more about yielding, surrendering, right? But also being touched by the divine. Yeah. So The thing is when that part in Mando Lorian when Grogu picks him over his Jedi order that's kind of like Grogu I'm it's kind of like marriage in a way that I am your family now I'm not saying they have sexual relations I'm just saying there's this marriage as a union of family rather than like a sexual relationship yeah so I mean if you think about Shrek Right. You think about Princess Fiona marrying Shrek. It's cuz Shrek proved himself as a knight energy and by the end of the thing Shrek becomes royalty in the way that Fiona chooses to be an ogre with him. Right? And I know that he doesn't earn the kingdom, but there's this sense of he earned the ah uh, the kind of approval that he's always wanted in the start of the story which is instead of he's an ogre that people hate and people don't want to approach by the end of it a lot of the fairy tale kingdom likes him right and he even has the girl he even has Fiona you see what i'm saying so um so for a lot of mythical archetypal stories this is i know i spent a lot of time explaining it <laughs> But this is typically what the arcs of a feminine energy and a masculine energy is. It's quite repetitive and for good reason because that's kind of like the arc of your own feminine and masculine energies within you. Your feminine grows to wield its own divinity but also discern who to trust. Your masculine learns how to be fucking strong 
and loyal, devoted, committed to the feminine aspect within you as well. So these are like evolutions within you. And yes, your inner child is also a divine feminine within you that you are protecting until that thing becomes like, you know, fucking strong. <laughs> I mean, like fucking coronated. Yeah. So if we go back to the other symbols of The Last of Us, I think the only thing we haven't really... Because I really simplified it, okay? So I'm only doing Joel, Ellie, and the cordyceps, okay? So if we look at the relationship of cordyceps as the destruction of the world and with, like, Ellie and Joel, it's kind of like an antithesis to their desire to subsist, exist, and live. Like, what do you live for? A lot of the minor characters all kind of... So for example, the gay couple, right? They kind of all have an argument of, okay, amidst all of this death, how am I going to live? Or why would I bother living, right? And the thing is, when Joel and Ellie have these moments of sincere connection, it's almost kind of hard to watch because we're so used to them trying to just survive that when, when they're actually living, when they're actually enjoying themselves, it's almost too precious. It's almost too fragile amidst this backdrop of violence and survival and death, right? And in the same way, you could say that the cordyceps is kind of like man's shadow, right? It's that denial of death itself, of destruction itself, and how permeating it is. So I feel like a lot of people via the pandemic, or even when the pandemic didn't happen yet and The Last of Us was just being written, a lot of us kind of just ignore the decaying and death aspects of all of our lives. The reason why a lot of post-apocalyptic and zombie genres, like I'm not the first person to say that the zombie genre is an expression of our denial of death, but if we had such a, if we lived in constant reminder of our mortality, we would have this very lucid preciousness with our relationships and with our lives, right? And the thing is, the reason why we need these survival stories, these reminders of pestilence, reminders of mortality, is because in our everyday lives, everything is overly sanitized and convenient to a point that we usually lie about the persistence of death. Like we have anti-aging creams, we kind of hush-hush when we talk about people who are sick, right? We cover the ears of children when we talk about our relatives who have cancer. So the thing is, when we engage with stories that have this very thick air of death, it's almost like our subconscious correcting itself in terms of, oh yeah, oh yeah. Being reminded of our mortality isn't so bad. Yeah, so on a collective level, uh, the function of the cordyceps within the story is kind of like the perfect antithesis to the argument of the Ellie Joel shenanigans. Yeah, like the whole thesis of Ellie and Joel of what is worth living for, what is worth all of the sacrifice for, what is worth fighting for, what is worth um, almost defying fate for. It's to live, right? And then cordyceps is literally just killing, right? It's just the, the death of other humans, okay? 
yeah yeah so do you see how um in the same way that a lot of so for folks who are new to like cultural story analysis a lot of uh myths around vampires merfolk of folk who are like in between one thing and another so for example mermaids a lot of like queer and migrant people resonate a lot with that because it's being one thing and not and that liminality being like an identity you empathize with because you both feel human and not human because you were dehumanized because of your gender your color your um weirdness your queerness your oddness your uncanniness right and even godzilla was made after the nuclear bomb shenanigans in japan and it talks about this grand scale of like an unknown force and just processing the fear of that whoa what about this thing that is like we can't handle just like the scale of it and how like for generations like little boys and just the collective had this symbol had this archetype godzilla right of of how to process that scale of a singular destructive force. So this is what I meant about being able to really understand. So for example, right now, you know how to understand myths in terms of like the hero, heroine and like understanding the underlying symbols of like the main components of that story by explaining it to an alien, right? And I gave you other examples such as mythical creatures especially if they're teenagers and they're like not accepted right so this is why wednesday or this is why twilight you know vampires and werewolves that's that's kind of like the whole energy of those stories and then like another example would be godzilla even though i've just brief very very briefly explained it so what i want you to do is check the myths that you like Right. So these are the stories that you would buy merch for. So for example, maybe you have Spider-Man, maybe you have some sport anime, uh figurines in your room and then kind of see what archetypes you're really drawn to in terms of like these characters, the ones that you feel very close to and you feel like you're rooting for and then kind of do this exercise on those stories. Yeah. So if you noticed a lot of the black-haired protagonist in Japanese anime tends to be like the broody kind, the very lonely kind and then they learn to have friends and like be stronger with other people. So it kind of speaks to the consciousness of a lot of Japanese young men in terms of they start out feeling very lonely. Yeah. So there's that um there's that collective story of gaining friends like it's a very common archetype for their sports anime kind of things or at least the ones i'm drawn to so that's what i've noticed with the stories i like from japan and i also do story game design in indie ttrpg so i do a lot of these um story analysis but i gamify it so that people kind of play with these archetypes so i could go on and on <laughs> about examples of these about like holy grail 
um, getting magical objects and then collecting them. And then when you have all the magical objects together, you get to finally complete a certain thing. And then, you know, you get a wish from a genie or a dragon or something. So you see that in several stories. So I feel like people who really like TV tropes or like overly sarcastic productions have a leg up (laughs) in terms of feeling into these archetypes. Because this is not just like nerdery or geekery. This is... These are tropes that have existed for eons. And these are mechanisms, even how like good and bad is presented in a culture, is something that people have made courses over, like specialties over. And when I'm sharing it here in this podcast, I kind of want you to at least have a basic grip of these, especially, for example, when you're watching movies or you're listening to people talk about their favorite stories, their favorite shows. I feel like, yes, you could just listen to your boyfriend talk about their latest action movie, right? But when you talk about and listen to him talk about like an archetype and how he's so cool and whatever, you could feel into the energy beneath that and be like, oh, he's drawn to the bastard prince archetype. Oh, he's drawn to the bad boy archetype. Mm, So there's something about order or, oh, this friend of mine kind of has like an attraction towards uh, couples that always have a tension of opposites, right? So there's that. There's just that little flip or that little kilite, little tickle of, oh, okay, so it's, it's almost like massaging, someone talk about stories it's like massaging that and just seeing the underneath of it i'm not saying this so that you could psychoanalyze your partner or your friends i'm saying this so that you could actually hear this part of them that they're actually talking to you about they're just finding a different way to say it yeah so for example if you have your boyfriend always talk about like the bad boy right or the scorned character and be very passionate about how they're scorned you could actually hear the hurt or hear the affiliation he feels towards that aspect in the story and really be able to like oh okay i think i get what he's talking about right instead of like judging that person for liking such a disdainful character or you having an opinion of like oh that's like worthy to be liked or not like i'm like no 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 that's information and now you have like a way to feel into that information. So, so whether your mom has an opinion on JLo, right? Whether you're watching a film with friends, right? You have this new lens of how to feel and approach it, both on a personal level, interpersonal level, and a collective cultural level, right? And Kavit, if you have symbolic dreams, This is exactly how you interpret them. And yes, I gave you a whole dream interpretation episode without having to talk about a quote-unquote strictly a dream, right? Because I really do want to hit home that stories are dreams, are dreamings. They're just recorded. And I want you to be able to feel into this underbelly, regardless if it was a dream you remember. Or a dream that you witness via television or via fables. 
yeah. And that's it. That's all I have for this episode because I do want to be time efficient. If you have any thoughts, feelings, comments, you want to recommend this to a friend, I highly encourage you all to do that. And if you want to consult me about interpreting a personal dream, uh, maybe it's a symbolic thing that came up for you via actual dreams or via a story that you can't get out of your head. Something you wrote or even something you witnessed. It's like, oh my god, Maria, gladiator, and then, I don't know, I can't get it out of my head. If you want to interpret that with me in this same method, and possibly with just someone with more experience, you could freely book me. But otherwise, I hope you enjoy this, and ciao!